you very much to all uh, three. That was, I think, a fantastic 15 minutes overview of uh, these three award-winning books. I'm going to start with you, Paul. I mean, um, reading your book and hearing you talk about that deeper understanding of change, you know, the oldest continuous culture and yet clearly um, incredibly resilient and creative peoples who have constantly evolved. And I suppose I I was sort of aware um, in reading your book that Stan Grant begins it by saying, Paul asks us to look again at Sydney, to see beyond the towers and concrete, the maze of roads and sprawling suburbs to glimpse what is eternal. Everywhere, he says, there are reminders, the rock engravings, shelters that tell us Sydney has an Aboriginal past. This book tells the story of entangled lives when white met black and how a new nation was formed. I suppose I'm particularly interested in how you write Aboriginal history as a non-Aboriginal historian and and what challenges there are in doing that. Yeah, look, I think it's a a space that is is, um, something that you have to be constantly aware of when you're writing about I guess any any topic that's not something that's immediately your own, but it's particularly there are issues obviously around writing about Indigenous cultures mm. um, and the long history of appropriation as both an archaeologist and historian, um, particularly the archaeology uh, discipline has a pretty terrible history of of you know physically appropriating Aboriginal culture for its own needs. But um, this really evolved out of um, relationships and and the sharing uh, generous sharing of aboriginal people in the the la perouse community to communicate their story and i think it's been a sort of process of negotiation consciously or otherwise to sort of know where your boundaries are you know what what are you going to talk about and um I think it wouldn't be obvious if you weren't aware of that to read a book like like Hidden in Plain View and realise that there's actually some very conscious choices about what not to include mm. and what not to talk about. Um, and uh, But I also think that there's a place for people. Uh, what I was trying to convey in the book and, and I mentioned before too is about uh, the responsibilities of all uh, uh, non-Aboriginal people in Sydney and, and elsewhere to try and understand the, the deep and uh, entangled history of our country. And I wrote the book from the point of view of starting from a point of ignorance myself and, and lack of knowledge. And I don't claim to, to know everything or, or have a complete story now, but I felt I could also contribute something precisely because I wasn't uh, an Aboriginal person. Mm. I was writing as someone who had made that uh, journey or started on that journey to try and understand. So I think there is a, a place for that, but I think you've always got to be conscious. Uh, and in you know, in my circumstance, um, I you know I work with Aboriginal people who are part of that story, and we're constantly sort of talking about that. So I have a, a sense of what I, you know, yeah, feel a, a, appropriate in talking about and not. Uh, you talk about journey. We hear a lot about journeys um, now, but I mean, it was a journey. It was ten years, wasn't it? I mean, that's a quite a a long period of time to really yeah, get yeah, the book right. I think so, yeah. So, you know, well, they're I'm, laughing there. Yeah. Ten years is clearly not a long period of time. What well, do I know? It's probably actually longer than that because when yeah. you look at you look at sort of how a spark was sort of, of curiosity was created, and for me that was probably, you know, closer to 15 years before mm. the book came out. Um, 
I think it's just been a journey of learning. I mean, I still work and live in this in this place um, around those issues, and I'm constantly learning. I think it, it was um, something that you needed to accumulate up to a certain point too, given the nature of the the mm. sources, the very fragmentary nature of it. I don't think I could have written it after, say, five years. I think it no. needed also to evolve the relationships with, with my fellow researchers in La Perouse to be comfortable Build enough to, to actually that, yeah. publish that story. Yeah. Thanks. Um, Christina, um, I think it's been said of your book, a defeated soldier prisoner by people of a different race did not sit well with the mythology of Anzac. You, you kind of mentioned it a tiny bit in your talk, but I'm interested in what did, what did you discover about Australian concepts of manhood through your research? I guess it goes to the heart of the question about whether... Uh, the prisoner of war was an emasculated soldier. And I guess the best way I can convey that is by asking you to imagine a picture of an Anzac recruiting poster. So the recruiting posters for World War II were strong, tall, white guys, sort of specimen, you know, fine specimens of manhood. Um, and then contrast that with the images, particularly of. Uh, released prisoners of the Japanese that were published in the daily newspapers in 1945. And those men were often pictured lying down in a very um, passive pose. Um, they're often emaciated with rib cages showing and wearing loincloths. And instantly you get the contrast between the image that people had of a soldier and what a, a, a released prisoner looked like. Uh, and you also have to think about... Uh, the languages that surround war. So the language of war is often about um, battle, about virility, about people being warriors and great fighters. And the prisoner of war, by definition, um, was a defeated soldier who'd been captured by the enemy and could not perform the task for which he was employed by the nation. Uh, so there's all sorts of ambivalences that surround prisoners of war and the question of manhood really came up repeatedly, yeah. um, particularly when they were released. Some of them said, you know, we feel like we've lost our manhood, like that that mm. starkly. Mm. Thank you. Um, and just turning to you, uh, Sean, um, it's a, uh, the judges' report, you know, they're always interesting to read, why, why you've book was selected and it says in other hands a history of stump speeches could have been a worthy plod <laughs> but Scalmer's oh. evocative style ensures that this book is delightful as well as an instructive read and I think we had we could see that in the way that you talked about it but I suppose and I was interested in that kind of archival gold theme of you know drawing on novels songs pamphlets all sorts of other things but I suppose I'm interested in the actual writing of the book uh, if you had to describe a breakthrough moment on how you found the kind of style and rhythm of the book, when would that be? And, and is there such a thing, I suppose, for all of you of that kind of breakthrough moment? Yes, um, they, you know, if, for those of you who don't know, they, um, they publish the citations of the shortlisted works before they announce the winner. And when I read that citation saying it could be a dull plot in other hands, I thought, well, there's no way I'm winning this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, so yeah, uh, the question of, of writing and finding a voice, 
Um, I think what all of us, um, our, all of our experiences um, are that these books aren't written um, in one moment. At you know no. uh, Thursday afternoon, we sat down and we began the yeah. book, and we had the book. Vo- yep. they're, they're growing out of sort lots of, of writing and, and yeah. lots of uh, experimentation yep. with voice, with evidence, with argument. Um, so writing uh, for me, and uh, I'm interested in what the others find, is a process of itself a process of clarification and reflection. Yeah. So um, as you begin to gather material, you, you think, um, I, I talked about that moment of, of yeah. finding the Duffy um, story. So I wrote that up and then um, began to, to look um, mm. for the earlier parts of the story as well as, as later. And then you've, you've tried to write it a certain way, that first piece, but then you begin to complicate it. And that's the great... Um, uh, the great joy the great of, of being challenge. a writer and a historian. Yeah. What about you, Christina? I well, I think also like good ideas, the structure of a book looks obvious in retrospect, but when you're in the middle of it trying to figure <laughs> it out, it's it's really difficult. And one of the challenges that I had with the book that um, the the battle within was that I was trying to tell the national story mm. about commemoration and who gets recognised as a hero and so on, as well as that more personal story about what was the impact on individual prisoners. And I think particularly when you're writing social history and you're working with archives of lots of different individuals, you can do it in a number of ways. Like one way is to think, okay, I've got 7,000 cases and there's theme A, B, C, D and E and then I can have examples under each of those themes or I can develop um, up um, representative case studies of a number of individuals. So when I was writing this book, I did have some chapters about um, marriages, for example, but I also chose three individuals to develop more fully as pictures of a life. So I used the letters that they'd written to this trust fund and then I did a whole lot of other research around them as individuals in the birth, deaths and marriages records, in divorce papers, in court records, in inquests, and I built up the story of the individual to sort of stand in for the whole of a number of types and I just... Loved doing that. That was my favourite writing in the book. I think I might be secretly a frustrated biographer. (laughs) (laughs) But structures look obvious in retrospect and you really wrestle with them to get them right as you're you're going. And I suppose, um, Sean, I'll come to you in a sec. Um, I suppose the challenges of Australian history writers or Australian historians finding a publisher of a global story, because, I mean, you've spoken about kind of a national story and personal stories. What about for you in terms of um, finding a, a publisher for a global story? Is that hard? Well, in some ways, I think it's it's hard for everyone yeah. who's writing history to find a publisher. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, it's it's not easy if you're working on a national, uh, yeah. particular national case or a transnational case, mm. uh, as in my um, I suppose the advantage is there's more markets you might appeal to um, and publishers, understandably, because they're under pressure, consider mm-hmm. those things. One of the challenges I had, I suppose, is that transnational history, the history of uh, entanglements and, and, and relationships between different uh, people in different nation states, is widely accepted in Australia um, and there are many fine exponents of transnational history here. The United States, it's less developed, less welcome, and in fact, especially with um, 
aspects of American democratic history, they um, aren't necessarily going to welcome uh, some uh, jumped-up Australian trying to, um, to to place their their particular national story in a wider um, global uh, context. And in fact, I had some readers say. Um, well, look, we know we're important, America. We don't need to trace um, how we might have influenced or been influenced by the story in Australia or Great Britain. So I think um, being a small, a smaller polity, a smaller nation state, uh, we're more aware of those things and more interested in those things than, than some, by no means all Americans. Mm. And given that we're in the midst of a, a big federal campaign, you know, night after night. I'm interested what that, you know, what you make of that in some ways as a historian. Do people come to you and want you to have a opinion? Not, not as much as I, I would have expected, right. actually. Wanted to be on the telly. You're waiting for that. Um, and I suppose, Paul, I, I'm really interested, you know, you've been immersed in this, you know, I've known you for many years. I, I'm interested in how all your research has affected uh, your view of Australia and almost your sort of view of your place in Australia. You know, you grew up here and I'm interested from that kind of personal point of view. Yeah, look, I think um, it was a really interesting and, and continues to be a really interesting journey of discovery and what I'm actually finding since the book came out and I'm continuing to research with colleagues in La Perouse is that I'm I'm starting to learn more about the story from their point of view, which I thought I'd sort of mm. grasped that they're, you know, sharing more and more things now, which are sort of deepening my understanding. I guess it's one thing to understand that the history of Australia is built on a history of of ignoring, of disadvantaging, of, of violence towards Aboriginal mm. people and all of the, the ways that that's played out at different times in different places. Um, but I'm, I guess I'm really starting to understand that view now from from you know the perspective of, of people I know in a, in a way that I think I've, I've, I've kind of intellectualised it a bit up until that point. And even in writing this book, I, I, I can just feel now that I'm starting to, to get a sense of what it's, what it's actually meant you know, to people sort of emotionally as well. Um, you know, in terms of the, the, the views on Australia, I think it's just made me very aware that um, the idea of, of reconciliation in Australia, which is something that everyone knows about, but I don't think many of us actually practice it, and it's what I alluded to before about really coming to a deeper understanding of, of, of what it actually has meant to live in different parts of Australia for non-Aboriginal people and Aboriginal people. Every place has a different history, but if all we do is recognise Aboriginal people now, which is certainly a better step forward than ignoring Aboriginal culture and history and people, but if all we do now is, is just sort of recognise survival and, and, and think that's a sort of a, a good place to stop, I don't think we're really reconciling anything. I think... I mean, I'm an ad advocate for education and knowledge in that sense. I think we really need to engage with that history and understand what it means and what it doesn't mean because I think most of us carry one or two facts that we absolutely are certain of about Aboriginal culture and history and they're almost universally wrong when we actually pick them apart. We were going to talk a bit about activism and the use of your work and how that might be taken forward, but I'm aware I've got a million questions, but it's up to you in the audience to ask some questions now. So we've got somebody in the front row. I don't know, is there a roving mic? Yeah, hi, my question is really to Sean, and uh, I, I apologise, I haven't read the book, but I was immediately struck as you started talking and, and kept talking 
about Donald Trump. I'll say the Strump factor. You know, you know, that. And I just wonder whether he's mentioned in your book, and or you know, are tweets archival gold? <laughs> uh, so he is he is mentioned, of course, um, it, it, at the end of the book. And so one of the th- <laughs> one of the things I was trying to do was, in a way, to um, explain how uh, he's not a completely um, he's not completely out of the American p- uh, political tradition in many ways. And so he's building upon um, some of the methods uh, that were used in earlier times. Yes, he tweets, um, uh, and they will be archival gold and are presently uh, archival gold if you can if you can work work your way through them. Um, but. Uh, but he's also um, using methods that were um, developed and refined in the 19th century so that the things that look odd to us um, as Australians about the really big party rallies, um, you know, they were developed as a political form in uh, the early to middle 19th century. And so, um, uh, yeah, one of the things I'm trying to do in the book is to contextualise and to explain some of the features of, of contemporary politics like Trump. Okay, the second row here. Yeah. I'm afraid my question is to Sean as well. Um, Sean, you mentioned at the start of your talk, or you posed the question, is um, dissolution genuinely new? But I don't remember you answering it. <laughs> so I, I think that... Um, well, I tried to say there was no golden age. So in that sense, um, I think there has always been a fragment of um, disaffection with democracy, um, but that has taken different forms at different moments. Uh, so in the early uh, period of the rise of the stump speech, um, there was a, uh, a belief that it would elevate the ambitious, it would destroy um, the notion of public service, um, and that it might inflame the the passions of the mob who would bring down you know the, the political order so some of those um, uh, points of disaffection um, remain, but I think um, contemporary disaffection and disillusionment um, is, takes also many different forms, such as a belief that our political institutions our, our party system you know, isn 't working in the way that it should yeah just. Third row, fourth row, and then here. Um, oh, hello. Um, my question is to Paul. Um, a sense of a sense of place is a sense of change, and it it fascinates me that um, there's this I- idea of 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 country of of movement of change. And you 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 address the the climate change issue in 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 Sydney and how how the coastal has changed. And, and continues to change. Do you do you get the sense that um, this sense of place, um, like we we have a call to country at the beginning of all these talks, the Gadigal of the of the or a nation? Do you get that sense that um, what is important to Gadigal is becoming part of the Sydney story? In the sense of of seasons, I, I, I think of um, we have our rituals in 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 Australia, our our, our seasons, our um, our Christmas, our Easter, when which are determined by a geography of a northern hemisphere. The southern hemisphere, the the the, the seasonal changes in Sydney are not acknowledged. 
Yeah, um, look, I, I mean, I think we could we can learn a lot in Sydney and and all around Australia from looking at how Aboriginal people have learned and adapted to changing climate, but also just the realities of the Australian climate and its diversity across the country. Um, I think, though, we also need to be careful sometimes not to assume that we can somehow, you know, co-opt knowledge, um, which, you know, sadly, uh, I think, you know, in, in working closely with, with Aboriginal people at La Perouse, we're, we're, we're all on a journey of discovery to some extent. Um, you know, recently I had the experience of looking through some fascinating papers from the 1890s of, of interviews with Aboriginal people out at La Perouse that was revealing information that I hadn't thought had survived, you know, cultural and, and ceremonial um, information. And, and that was, you know, an, an eye-opener for me. I thought I'd sort of understood where and how different sort of knowledges had, had sort of tapered off or, or where they had survived. But I think it's really important to try and understand the context of those two because we can sometimes grasp at um, things like the seasons is a good example. Like, I think, yes, we, we should absolutely be aware that the way that Aboriginal people viewed and, and continue to view seasons is, is not obviously going to be the same as an imported Northern Hemisphere view. But we also just need to be careful that we do fully understand that idea and don't grab at some, you know, fairly superficial aspect of it, you know, dividing into a certain number of seasons because there's a, a, a deeper rhythm to that, that that involving ceremony, involving a lot of other aspects of cultural life that... that um, you know, I wouldn't claim to understand and, and, and there are sort of, yeah, complexities around that that just to be, um, which goes back to the, the idea of, you know, trying to learn as much as we can so we can understand that. My question's for Christina. You mentioned the trust fund um, and I think 7,000 applications. Could you tell us something of that, its assessment criteria, um, how many would have been successful and was Robert one of the successful ones? <laughs> Robert was successful on a number of occasions, um, but not others. So the trust fund was created uh, by the federal government in 1952 after the failure of a compensation claim by prisoners of war. So prisoners of war argued that because the army hadn't been required to feed and clothe and house them while they were prisoners, that they deserved an extra compensation payment on top of things that the other service um, people had received. That was unsuccessful and, and quite controversially so because the Commission of Inquiry ruled that if compensation were paid to prisoners of war, it would be a disincentive to fight on in a future conflict for other service personnel so they wouldn't be paying them compensation. This was in 1950. So the trust fund was a compromised political solution that wasn't an entitlement for everyone, so people had to write in and described the ongoing impact of captivity on their lives, what had been the um, ongoing consequences for them. Um, and it was sort of four fool's cap pages. And one of the really most interesting questions on the form and the question that prompted the letter that I wrote out um, asked the prisoners, former prisoners, were they experiencing any ongoing material prejudice as a consequence of their imprisonment? And... A lot of people were saying, no, don't understand the question, what do you mean? And they don't change the question for 25 years, despite um, the confusion. But a couple of people started saying, 
complete failure for intercourse. My wife left me through sex reasons and I couldn't figure out why they were responding in that way. And then I figured out that some people thought material prejudice meant marital prejudice. So then they start describing all their problems with impotence, the breakdown in their marriages. This is why I described it as archival gold. And in a way, it's the, you know, the symbolic rendering of the prisoner of war as, as a, um, emasculated person is then made manifest in these men who believe that captivity have, has caused them to be, um, Impotent. So in terms of the success rate, a um, bit over half the applicants to the fund were successful. Uh, there were all sorts of assumptions about respectability and worthiness that played into the decisions of the trustees. So it can be, to modernise, quite shocking to see the kind of judgments that were passed on people who were just derailed uh, by their experiences as being alcoholics, um, as no-hopers who would take the grant and drink the lot, so we won't give anything to that person. So it's a real window into attitudes towards respectability and welfare, I think, in, in post-war Australia as well. Yeah. We've got time for one last very quick question. Um, this is a question to Paul. Um, I very much enjoyed your talk. Um, thank you very much. Um, you advocated um, education and knowledge. Can you tell us and please give us some hope that this is happening within the educational system? Yeah, look, it, it absolutely is. And um, I see that, I mean, I, I've certainly, having worked in, in history and heritage for about 20 years, um, I can see over the last 10 years some interesting developments and both in the number of people and the quality and depth of research that, say, historians are doing and archaeologists and Aboriginal communities themselves and community history, um, but also that that is meeting and, or trying to meet a growing demand in the public for, for that information. I think there's a lot of people who want to go beyond just an acknowledgement or a, some sort of symbolism, not that that's not important in its own way, to really understanding that. And certainly the capacity has been in curriculums for you know, much longer than that to, to teach very local and specific Aboriginal history. And, and that is happening. But I guess we have to get to the stage too where the teachers themselves have been educated by that stage to be able to effectively teach students. And I think that's going to be a, an ongoing process. There's some fantastic initiatives, but I, I, think, um, we're, we're, I think we're heading in a trajectory that's not going to be looking back, put it that way. I agree with that. I mean, working at Sydney Living Museums, the, the demand and the interest... And it often starts with children, actually. Their education and their knowledge is growing each year. It's, you know, really integrated, as we know, in the national curriculum. There's a, there's a big shift. So I share, I share that hope. Um, well, thank you to the three um, panellists, to Paul, to Christina, to Sean. I think I hope that they will forever look for archival gold because <laughs> I think we're a richer country for the work that historians like this do and indeed the publishers, two of them are by New South Publishing and the third one by Temple University Press, you know, and that importance of publishing and, of course, readership, which, of, which you all, um, I know, are deep readers. Otherwise, you wouldn't be at Sydney Writers' Festival. So I'm going to welcome Catherine back onto the stage, but I wanted to thank the panel. Thank you.